From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And for those of you who have not been paying attention this week, and I can't imagine that there are any of you who are in that, uh, in that camp, let's start with the basics. Uh, schools are still closed across the state. The, the soft closure is still in effect, and Idaho is still operating under a statewide stay-at-home order. Uh, that affects uh, many businesses. But an eventful week in the sense that we got a framework of how some schools might actually reopen later this spring and a framework on how Governor Little wants to try to uh, move from the stay-at-home order to uh, to more uh, more business activity around the state. Yeah, I think those were the top two stories, really, Kevin, from where I saw things. And they both kind of came together the second half of this week. Uh, if you want, we can start with the most recent news, and that was on Thursday, April 16th, the Idaho State Board of Education voted unanimously to approve the reopening criteria that local school districts would need to meet if they hope to reopen their schools this academic year. There's several, we kind of knew what some of the things were likely to look like, and they basically followed that but there's several conditions in there, and we heard from Greg Wilson, the chief education advisor for Governor Brad Little's office, and it's a <clears throat> intentionally, pardon me, it's a high bar intentionally, yeah. um, the way that they created these criteria, but the first piece of criteria is going to make it so that no schools can open this month, and we already know that, right, Kevin? Because right. number one on the list of criteria is that all statewide and local social distancing restrictions have to be lifted. And that includes the stay home order, which, as we know, Governor Little extended through April 30th, the day before. But the first right. one is so kind, of kind of a big one. the end of month in, in schools, at the very least. Yeah. And so nobody can do anything in terms of looking at in terms of reopening schools until uh, that happens. And we don't know exactly what will happen on April 30th slash May 1. The governor talked a lot about his desire to, he wants kids to be able to go back to school. He wants to reopen the economy, but I think we're kind of taking things a day at a, a day at a time or certainly two weeks at a time here Absolutely. before we know um, too much more in, in that regard, there's also additional criteria in the reopening plans. There can't be any community spread uh, in in the local areas that are looking to reopen, and there has to be evidence of, of case numbers is um of flattening the curve. There has to be this four fourteen day period, this two week period um, that has passed since a peak in cases, and so the Department of Health and Welfare and local public health officials. We'll have to make some of those determinations when, you know, when is it safe to say that community spread is not an issue? And keep in mind that just this week, Governor Little said there is community spread in nearly every corner of Idaho. He said that, I right. believe, on Wednesday. And so it'll be up to health and welfare and public health officials to determine, okay, you know, have we addressed community spread? Is that something that's been suppressed? And then also identifying the peak and this 14-day period where cases need to be 
in decline. And there are some exceptions carved in there that if your community didn't have confirmed cases or didn't have community spread at the time that the statewide restrictions are lifted, then they could consider meeting with public health officials and waiving that requirement. Um, but those are three of kind of the the high level criteria. And then there needs to be local plans as well. And at a minimum, those have to include cleaning and disinfection protocols. Those have to have a plan identifying and planning both staff members and students who could be vulnerable either because of their age or because of their immune system. There has to be a plan and identification for close contact. Uh, if school reopens, there has to be an absenteeism plan for both students and staff who, even if the school did reopen this year, they didn't feel comfortable returning. And, um, and they have to meet with their local public health officials. And so it strikes me as particularly for large districts in our population centers, and especially anywhere with community spread, I don't see how those kinds of schools could meet that criteria yet this academic year because right. we're really talking about the month of May is the time period they have to work with. And then we're really looking at summer break would be close at hand after Memorial Day, right? And, and, and significantly, Clark, I mean, you're right about everything you said there. And, and significantly, we've seen a couple of large districts in the state already say they're going to stick with the remote learning plan through the end of the academic year. Boise said that uh, last week. Um, Boise's been an area where you've had uh, some fairly high confirmed uh, case numbers. Uh, you have had community spread in, in the Boise area, so maybe not too much of a surprise that uh, trustees decided to stick with the remote learning plan th through the end of the year. Interestingly, this week, the Pocatello School District came out with a very similar uh, decision. And Pocatello is an interesting case because when we start to talk about you know, the, the coronavirus case numbers and the spread of coronavirus as it relates to these uh, state board guidelines, Bannock County has only five confirmed coronavirus cases at this point. Um, very low numbers throughout pretty much all of Southeast Idaho. And yet the Pocatello School District came out and said, we're going to stick with uh, remote learning through the rest of the school year. And the head of the local health department in, in, in the Pocatello area came out and said she supported that decision, that uh, you know the Pocatello area has low coronavirus case numbers and we want to keep it that way. And this policy by the school district is a step in that direction. So you know, you've had some larger districts, you've had other districts like Blaine County, already saying they're not interested in trying to reopen. Uh, their, their plan is to just ride out the rest of the school year doing what they're doing right now, which is remote learning, you know, online learning, uh, getting printed materials in the hands of students who can't work online. So yeah, playing this thing forward, knowing all of these criteria that are in place, all of these, uh, you know, all of these checkpoints that a district would have to meet in order to reopen, I'm hard-pressed to see that there are going to be very many schools uh, that can reopen, and I'll be interested to see how many school districts even try. Yeah, I, I you know, maybe some of the smaller ones, maybe some of the ones um, in more isolated communities, and I think we, this is kind of the new normal now, but I think we need to throw in this caveat at several times during the podcast, and 
but obviously confirmed cases are a function of testing. And we've heard everyone from Governor Little to Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jeppesen say that uh, they're concerned about the lack of testing in Idaho. And, and so... 1% of the population has been tested right now. 1% has been tested, and so even and we though... We don't even know where those tests have taken place. My, yeah. my supposition, my, my theory would be that most of those tests have taken place in areas where there's community spread, places like Ada County, places like Blaine County. You, it would just stand to reason that more of the tests would be going on where more of the... Uh, where more of the problem has been identified. So yeah, I don't think we really have a good sense of what's going on in some of these communities because the testing is so very limited. Well, and, and Governor Little said this on Tuesday and Wednesday, but he said, remember, just because there are no confirmed cases in a county or an area, that doesn't mean there are no actual cases uh, because of the testing. And so that's a caveat that we just need to keep in mind that we don't know a lot and it appears to be a, I hate that word, but it appears to be a dynamic situation that is changing constantly. And, and so we know that testing and a lack of testing is a factor. And so even in cases, even in areas where there are no or low confirmed or probable cases, we still just don't know that must because of, like you said, only about 1% of Idahoans have been tested. And so there's so much that we don't know but regardless it is a high bar and was likely intended to be a high bar to reopen but if governor little extends the stay home order beyond april 30th then all bets are off it's game over yeah do you want to talk about you know and and, you know before we you know get away from it i mean we've talked about kind of the science of what's in the state board criteria for reopening schools but as we're constantly reminded in this uh, coronavirus debate, nothing in the coronavirus debate occurs outside of uh, a political uh, realm. And oh, yeah. the decision of reopening schools is going to be a, a political decision made at the local level. You know, I don't think it's coincidental that uh, districts like Boise and Blaine County were quick to say that they're not interested in reopening uh, for the rest of the school year. Again, I'll be really curious to see how many uh, districts, how many elected trustees are interested in trying to make the case to reopen schools. And I think that kind of comes down to, you know, what's the local dynamic? You know, perhaps in a community where there are no confirmed cases or very few confirmed cases of coronavirus, uh, you know, maybe a remote area that's, you know, maybe having some trouble making the transition to online learning where, uh, you know, you know, Parents are maybe frustrated with what's available. Uh, educators are frustrated with what they can make available. And let's face it, we, we know what the national polling suggests about where you know, public sentiment lies on the coronavirus outbreak. And you know, in a conservative community uh, where maybe uh, patrons are a little bit more skeptical about the severity of the coronavirus outra- outbreak because they're also not seeing it uh, close to home, maybe trustees in a community like that would feel more comfortable going to patrons saying, we think we can reopen. We think we meet the criteria we'd like to try. Um, yeah, a very clear set of criteria. I mean, it's it's obvious what uh, districts would have to meet in order to reopen, but uh, pretty high scientific bar and you know, it could be a you know daunting political bar uh, in, in some communities. Yeah, and the the politics of this whole situation has been interesting, and I guess it was perhaps inevitable, but we saw that this week leading up to 
Governor Little's announcement on Wednesday dealing with the state home order. But I think in one of my articles, I said this has become a a political football and you've seen it play out at the national level. Uh, You've seen it play out at the state level and at the local community level. But you've got President Trump started the week off on Monday by (laughs) tweeting that despite what you read in the media, it's the president's decision to read. Let's quote him correctly. Yeah, the fake news media that... uh, you know that it, it's despite what you read that it's not, it's the president's decision to reopen the country, not the governor's. And then you've got governors pushing back on this. You've got governors in some neighboring states who formed coalitions to fight the virus and plan kind of a joint response to reopening their communities. We saw that in Washington, Oregon, and California. But as the Spokesman Review reported, uh, the governor of Washington, Governor Inslee, has not spoken with. Governor Little, and there was this quote that, you know, he's maybe got some opposition to deal with in Idaho, and until he addresses that, uh, we're not going to come to the table. And then Governor Little responded to that on Wednesday, saying, I'm happy to communicate and share resources and share data, uh, but we are a very different state than Washington and California. And meanwhile, uh, Boise State Public Radio's James Dawson had one of the best stories of the week, a scoop that he found Idaho Speaker of the House Scott Bedke and other Republican leaders sending a letter pressuring Little to turn the decision over to the local public health districts, saying the stay-at-home statewide order was ill-advised, and then kind of including a little bit of a... uh, a threat from the legislature should little um, veer into legislative responsibilities. And so it's really become extremely political, uh, a very highly politicized situation, as you might imagine. Yeah, I think what what happened this week and what I observed this week was um, you mentioned the Idaho Freedom Foundation. They've been very, they've been opposed to the stay-at-home order from the beginning. They've questioned the constitutionality of it. They're leading a protest on Friday afternoon in front of the state house. Well, Wayne Hoffman, the the president of the Idaho Freedom Foundation, attended a militia-organized Easter service last weekend and was hugging people. Uh, you mentioned the rally today uh, to defy the statewide stay-home order. They're telling people how to break the law. Um, interesting, interesting response there. And it, it, but it also felt like this week that the impatience about the stay at home order, it felt a little bit more mainstream. You mentioned Jimmy Dawson's story, uh, and the letter that, uh, House Speaker Scott Bedke sent Raul Labrador, the, uh, chairman of the state Republican party weighed in and urged, uh, governor little to reopen the state and to consider the long-term economic ramifications of a stay-at-home order in addition to the the public health implications of COVID-19. So it's it's moved from, you know, folks like uh, Representative Heather Scott and, you know, kind of the loyal opposition, uh, you know, who you would normally expect to hear in, in, in protest to where the Speaker of the House is weighing in, the, the chairman of the state Republican Party, who, oh, by the way, uh, ran in 2018 for the uh, for the governor's uh, nomination, uh, was defeated by, by Governor Little in that primary. Yeah, this, it, it feels like it's a, a lot more of a, 
of a political firestorm at this point. And that was the setting that led us into Wednesday when the governor announced his plans to extend the stay-at-home order with some modifications. Well, and some of this has turned nasty. You mentioned Heather Scott, state representative, a Republican from, I want to say Blanchard, yep. uh, but mm-hmm. compared Governor Little to Adolf Hitler this week in public. And so it's begun, it's gotten nasty. Uh, it, it really and has. it's gotten really unfortunate. Um, but that does bring us to Governor Little's decision on Wednesday regarding the state stay-home order. I hopped on a telephone town call on Tuesday, and he said, this is not an easy decision. Uh, nobody is more interested in getting our economy going and protecting the prosperity of Idahoans than I am. But I think Governor Little said, I can't have Idahoans be prosperous if they're not safe. And mm-hmm. that really, to me, I think is kind of the crux of the decision that he's facing. You know, he said, I don't like this closing down the economy one bit, but I can't have Idahoans be prosperous if they're not safe. And I think that's the decision that has weighed on him as he's met with public health officials, the state epidemiologist, Dr. Christine Hahn, health and welfare director, his own staff and economic advisors. I think the idea of we want a prosperous Idaho, but we can't have that until we have a safe Idaho. I think that's the crux that led to the decision we saw on Wednesday, at least based on what I'm seeing and following. Yeah. I mean, as I listened to Governor Little talk, uh, on Tuesday with AARP Idaho members uh, during his weekly uh, town hall, uh, telephone town hall, and then his press conference on Wednesday, um, he definitely sounds like he's agonizing over this, that this is a difficult decision as, as it, it should be. I mean, the implications of the virus and the outbreak and uh, stay at home order and, 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 ordering businesses to close, those are weighty decisions. These, these should, you know, you know, if you're not agonizing over decisions like this, uh, there's something wrong with you. Yeah. So for him to be, you know, clearly conflicted about this uh, is exactly what you would expect. Um, but I go back to one comment that he made in the AARP meeting where he was being challenged, where there was a caller who questioned the need to, to do a shutdown, to, to do a, a stay-at-home order based on the number of cases. He said, you know, if we didn't do this, we would have so many more cases. The implications of doing nothing, the cost of doing nothing are, in his words, unspeakable. So I think that was the backdrop that led to where he went on Wednesday. Long story short, uh, stay-at-home order is in effect until April 30th. That's in line with uh, the guidelines that we've seen from the federal level. Some loosening of the restrictions on non-essential businesses. Uh, some businesses will be able to to get back to work and reopen if they can do curbside delivery or uh, you know, or delivery services you know to you know, to homes right So that may allow places like uh, flower shops, uh, garden shops, jewelers to to reopen um, with the idea that come May 1st, uh, the governor would like to see if there are ways to open up more businesses to to further uh, roll back some of the restrictions. Not for everybody, not for every business. He, he's making it pretty clear that he wants May 1st and beyond businesses to reopen if they can maintain social distancing, if they can keep their facilities clean and, and sanitary, 
if they can kind of direct the traffic uh, you know, of customers within their operations. And he said some businesses are not going to open anytime soon. Yeah, I, I think it'll I think it'll be a long time before we get together uh, at a brewery uh, for that drink yeah, that I owe you for a while. I mean, because you know he he says that businesses like that, restaurants with dining services, you know, salons, gyms, public events, where you can't maintain that six feet of social distancing, those businesses are not opening anytime soon. But you got a sense that the governor wants to try to reopen some things. He wants to try to uh, roll back the restrictions. But as I listened to, to him talk on Wednesday, as I listened to the state board deliberate over the, the school policies, it became really clear if it wasn't already. It's one thing to close schools and one thing to close businesses. And in the face of this outbreak, the governor, the state board had to act really quickly. I had to make difficult decisions, but they had to move quickly. Reopening is a difficult decision, too, and it's not going to be quick. It's going to take time to get to a point where schools can reopen, some businesses uh, can reopen, where you can have public events, uh, where you can have people within six feet of each other safely. It's going to take a while to get to that point. And this is a good place to direct people to the homepage, www.idahoednews.org. If you need to get caught up on any of our big stories from the last 48 hours about the extension of the statewide stay-home order, and more specifically what that looks like, about the specific conditions for local schools who may attempt to reopen, the homepage is a place to be. But if you go to www.idahoednews.org, Kevin had a really interesting we call it a step back piece, but I think our, our regular listeners know that once a week you kind of do this big analysis. And this week you looked at that very topic that the state responded very, very quickly to turn things off. Uh, but flipping the spigot back on is going to take some time and it won't happen all at once, right? It won't happen all at once. And one reason that it won't happen all at once and, and can't happen all at once Governor Little referenced it on Wednesday. Uh, the state board guidelines uh, reference mm -hmm. it as well. There's a human aspect to this as well. The, the governor said, look, I cannot have an economic recovery unless I have citizen and consumer confidence. And he's absolutely right. I mean, I, that he's not telling you anything you already aren't wrestling with on a personal level. But, you know, I'm wrestling with on a personal level, you know. How safe do I feel in any decision that I make right now? Oh, at the end of the day, I'm people will vote with their feet. Myself in and yeah. those around me. Yeah. So, you know, opening a business is one thing, but having people feel comfortable going into that business, even if the business is doing everything that the guidelines suggest, it still comes down to our customers co comfortable going into that. Are parents comfortable sending their kids back to school, even if that school meets all of these fairly stringent guidelines from the state board. It's still, it's going to be parents deciding, do I feel comfortable sending my son or daughter back to school? And this it's, is a, a different, I feel comfortable going back to work. It's a different world that we live in. If you listen, you, I know you listened to the governor on, on Wednesday, Kevin, he said, we actually need to ramp up two practices and that's the social distancing and that's wearing of masks or face coverings when you're out in public places. And so, um, yeah, I think that question, it, it's one thing to open the stores up and the businesses up, but in this environment where, you know, we're being told to really be more vigilant about wearing face masks and coverings in public, 
and that's a change even for the state in this country in the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, when would people be comfortable going to that business, um, going to that bar, getting on that airplane, um, you know, shopping with their neighbors? Um, yeah, you know, I don't know. And it's going to be a personal question for a lot of people and, and a lot of families. It's something they'll have to weigh uh, and decide for themselves on a personal level. Right. I mean, you know, not to get overly philosophical about this, and, and I'm probably saying nothing that you know people haven't already figured out on their own. These are going to be very personal decisions. I mean, every decision that I make as a human being, as a as a citizen, as a global citizen, is going to be, what do I feel comfortable doing? What do I feel is safe for me, safe for those around me, safe for my community? And you know, that's not a decision that I'm going to uh, abdicate. I'm not going to let a mayor or a governor or a president make that decision for me. It's got to be what I feel comfortable with. Where, where do I want to be? Where do I feel you know, safe being? And, you know, I think we're all wrestling with those decisions. I mean, you know, mundane tasks like going to the grocery store are much more complicated and, and much more, you know, you know gut-wrenching, you know, it's difficult to do even the simple things and not wonder about whether you're doing it right or whether you're doing it safely or whether you're whether you're contributing to or are you part of the problem or part of the solution i mean yeah whether every step in every daily uh decision that you make it's it's a very different world and, and i think you knew this about me already kevin i already hated going to the grocery store during normal times and it gave me like public record and it gave me great anxiety and so even in normal times like my move would be to go at a weird time and try to go through super fast and avoid everyone and so this is a whole new thing um but the things that we do for fun i mean you, yeah you, you do trivia and i i, I like yeah. to go on you, you like to go skiing i like to you know do do races i mean yeah we're going to have to get to a point as people where we feel comfortable being in those crowds, even when those restrictions are lifted. It's still going to be you and me and everybody else in, in the world deciding, I feel okay. I can go do that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm good with that. You know, and we may not all get there at the same time. Yeah, I, it's a good point. Um, and, and this is changing constantly, and we're going to continue to cover it. I think there's two more topics I really want to get to today. At the very end, I have an invitation for our listeners and readers, yes. readers to join us for a cool project on Tuesday afternoon. But bef- so stay tuned for that at the end of today's show. But before we get to that, Kevin, um, you've been tracking the economic impact on higher ed, and you've been taking this week a really close look at the stimulus package, specifically that relates to colleges and universities and some of the aid that will be available to students. What kind yeah. of money are we talking about, and, and what's the latest that you've uncovered? We're talking about quite a bit of money. So we were able to kind of flesh out a little bit of what is in that Federal Stimulus Act as it regards higher education. We've already talked some about K-12. Uh, Idaho K-12 is going to get about $48 million, and that's going to be used to help offset the effects of the budget holdbacks that uh, Governor Little announced a couple of weeks ago. Well, we now know that higher education is going to get actually even more money than that. Um, Idaho higher education, factoring in the private institutions and the public institutions, 
Stanford received about $56 million in federal assistance. And here's an important thing to keep in mind about that $56 million. The first half of that money could go out very quickly, and it's got to go into direct student aid. That's a, a part of the law. Uh, at least half of the money has to go directly to students to help offset losses that they've incurred as a result of coronavirus, whether it's you know, housing costs or you know, you know, reimbursement on expenses, on tuition, what, what have you. Um, so $28 million in direct student aid, that's a pretty big chunk of money. I mean, that's, you know, you know, that's more than we give out yearly in opportunity scholarships at, at the state level. So it's, it's not an insignificant amount of money by any stretch of the imagination. And what I wanted to get a sense of, and it's still a little bit early, is how are the colleges and universities going to distribute that money? Uh, the feds have not given a lot of restrictive guidelines. I mean, schools can distribute the money across the board, give a little bit of money to everybody, or they can try to identify students that are really at, at high, highest need and target the uh, the payments to those students. So we don't really know how every institution is gonna do this. Uh, one example, the College of Southern Idaho says uh, they're not gonna go across the board. They're going to distribute their share of the money to uh, students at greatest need. Idaho State University is gonna try to use some of the money down the road to help with uh, student retention for summer and fall. And we know retention and enrollment is a big concern in the higher education community right now. So a lot we're still trying to figure out, but at least we could get some numbers to it. So, you know, college students across the state uh, could be in line to get some, some direct assistance and get it fairly quickly. The money is going to be available within a very short amount of time. So, you know, the law was written and structured in such a way that the uh, colleges and universities can... Uh, apply for the money and get the money in students' hands fairly quickly. So this is something we'll continue to track. Yeah, we'll continue to stay on top of it as the stimulus money, the student aid is made available, how that's handled. You've even started looking at some of the committees that will make some of the decisions about the disbursements of the stimulus funds. I've jumped on some of the State Department of Education webinars, and the latest as of this week was the money for K-12 schools, so that's totally different than what you were talking about a second ago for higher ed. The money for K-12 schools will be made available via an application, and I don't think the federal government has released the application quite yet. I think they have until the 26th, uh, and then state leaders will apply for that. So we'll continue to follow that side of the stimulus as well. Money, uh, one more chunk of money worth mentioning in the education arena. Governors are sharing about $3 billion that go directly to the governors, and they can decide whether to put that money into K-12 or higher education. For Idaho, that comes to about $15, $16 million that Governor Little will be able to put into K-12 or higher ed as he sees fit. So we'll, we'll track that, and we'll see where he, uh, he decides to put that money. So there's, there's quite a bit. I mean, it's about $120 million almost going into education in one manner or another. So yeah. And we'll know more uh, about we'll know more about all those pots of money over the next one, two, three, four weeks, and we'll report them out at the homepage and let you guys know uh, who's getting what and where it's going, what it's being used for. Right. 
One more big topic. I want to invite all of our listeners and readers to participate in a special, um, basically a special broadcast that we're going to have on our Facebook Live page coming up on Tuesday at 1 o'clock. We're going to have State Board of Education President Debbie Critchfield join Kevin and I. That's Tuesday, April 21st at 1 p.m. at the Idaho Education News Facebook page. We... A couple of weeks ago, when the closures started happening, we added a little button to our homepage saying, ask us anything about education. And we've gotten a lot of questions questions. from readers and and parents, you know, sometimes 15 or 20 or 25 questions a day. And folks just understandably have a lot on their minds right now. And so it's everything from, are my teachers still getting paid to, will my son or daughter be able to graduate? to what are the impacts that a potential pass-fail grading system could have on my transcript? What if my daughter wanted to look at going to a competitive out-of-state school or grad school down the road? And so Debbie Critchfield uh, has agreed to take our readers' questions for one hour on Tuesday. And Kevin and I will jump on. I think we're going to do it through Zoom and Facebook Live. Kevin and I will kind of be handling the the moderation and the, the questions and serving as your hosts. Uh, and we think it's a great opportunity to hear directly from the state board president uh, who's giving up an hour of her time uh, yeah, to take these questions. Schedule that she's got right now. She's uh, involved in pretty much all of the topics that we've been talking about here this week. And She'll be able to give uh, our listeners and families the latest on the guidelines for reopening, about how that intersects with the stay home order, She'll be able to talk about any of these questions that you have, both for K-12 education and for higher ed as well, uh, yeah. because our state board has that unique role in Idaho that they oversee both systems. It's kind of that one joint system. But I'm really looking forward to that, Kevin. Uh, we're starting to get questions. You and I are going to develop our own questions a little bit this afternoon and on Monday. But uh, what are you looking forward to most, and, and how do you think this will be interesting? Well, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity for, for us to ask uh, some questions of, of Debbie Critchfield, but it's also a chance for our, our readers and our viewers and, and listeners to get some of their questions answered. I mean, there's, you know, we talk about how it's a dynamic situation and, you know, this is a chance to, you know, to take a step in time and talk to somebody who's really on the, on the front lines of this uh, ever-changing education landscape. It's going to be a great opportunity for us to get some questions answered, and I hope uh, I hope our readers and listeners and viewers take advantage. And there's so much going on and so much to keep track of right now, but you know what's going to happen to our favorite bus driver? Okay, uh, with the kids at home from school for these extended closures now, are, are there options for them to still receive school lunch? And there are, and so we can talk about those kinds of things. Uh, But we really want to hear from our listeners, and we know we have a lot of parents and a lot of educators who follow our site and listen to this podcast. And so if you go to idahoednews.org on the right side of the homepage, there's that Ask Us Anything About Education field. Uh, And that's a a great way to get questions to us uh, by Monday. Anything that goes through there will get to us and can get in the queue uh, for our discussion. Also, if you'd rather reach out on an individual basis, uh, we're on Twitter. He's at Kevin Richard. I'm at Clark Corbin. You can also find our email addresses 
uh, via the homepage. But I think probably the easiest thing and the one central clearinghouse that will get your questions to us is just that ask us anything about education yeah. box. Yeah, just go to the homepage. You can't miss it. It's on the right-hand uh, side of the page. And that's uh, something we... We watch it very closely. It's, and if uh, you want to get ready for that, if you haven't already, you can go over on Facebook and like the Idaho Education News Facebook site so that come Tuesday at 1 o'clock, that's 1 o'clock Mountain Time, uh, you'll be all ready to go for the live chat. If you can't make it Tuesday at 1, obviously we hope you can, but we'll park it and we'll archive it on our site. So maybe if you can't uh, catch up until later that night or the next morning, it'll be there. We're going to talk about K-12, we're going to talk about higher education, we're going to talk about the closures, the re-entry procedures, the financial impacts, what this means for students, what this means for educators, and there's a lot to talk about. I think the hour will go very quickly. It'll fly by, but hopefully uh, you'll be able to watch and, and, and be part of the conversation. Okay. I think that's a good place to leave off uh, today, Kevin. I got to everything that I want to cover, and so I'll toss it back to you in a second in case there's anything I missed, but we always have a lot of fun on the Extra Credit Podcast, breaking down this ever-complicated intersection of education politics and education policy. We'll be back next week uh, with another new edition of Extra Credit, and we'll continue to cover the evolving situation with the coronavirus, the closures, the move to online uh, learning, but um, just appreciate it so much. We hope to see you and hear from you on Tuesday for our Facebook Live with Debbie Critchfield. And if not, we will be back on Friday to get you caught up on the week. In the meantime, have a good week and stay safe. All right. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Have a good week.